Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. We are live here at the StarCast Convention in beautiful Schaumburg, Illinois. I am your co-host, Chris from Mukigana Harrington, joined to my direct right. Uh, this time in the cardinal direction, I know exactly where he is. He's to my right. I don't know whether it's east, south, west, or north, but it is Brandon Howard Thurston, my co-host. Brandon, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm good. The, uh, the tap water here in Schaumburg is delicious, I can confirm. I've, I've tasted it many times. We are here at the Podcast Movement Westwood One stage. Uh, beautiful opportunity for us, provided by the fine people over at Podcast Movement and the excellent audio equipment and radio network at Westwood One. Uh, we're doing all the plugs we can because it's very important that everything at StarCast is branded, sold, and given back to you at a, a generous markup. But wh- why do you say that, Chris? Because this is the indie revolution, and the indie revolution will be monetized, commoditized, and resold in small packets to everyone. Mm-hmm. If you invested in the color black, you uh, did very well this weekend. If you're into orange, yellow, or any other the other uh, bright colors, you might have struggled a little bit more, but that's okay. Hopefully you shorted that stock. <laughs> I did. Sh- yeah, the uh, the color shorting of, of the world. We went to All In last night. We had a wonderful time. Brandon? Yes. Uh, what was your impression? It was a five-hour show. You, you're on indie shows that often go too long. Did you feel this show went too long? I, I think it was a great, great show. Five hours. Could have been four. But yeah, great show. But the question I want to ask you today, Mookie, it's a question I asked you in the car. I think it, as, as a capitalist, I think it made you a little uncomfortable. But what do we need promoters for anymore? Oh, that's an interesting question. But you could argue that the promoters were, in fact, the, the appeal of the whole show here, right? right. That the, right. the promoters, the promoters were, were, in were fact, the, the top wrestlers. And so, yes, we didn't have the nameless promoters of Days of Yore, but, in fact, we had the excellent promoters of the Young Bucks, Cody Rhodes, and then here for StarCast, I think Conrad Thompson has been working his butt off uh, to take all the hate mail and the love for everyone here. Uh, What's interesting about All In to me is that you can look at it very cynically or you can look at it very optimistically. So the optimistic scenario is the one that you mostly hear the narrative on. And, you know, that's very simple. We we set up a movement. We said that we're going to do something. We sold out all these tickets. We didn't have to announce a card because everyone was so into the concept of what professional wrestling could be with this array of talent, and that is what really matters. That's the very optimistic version, where then you immediately sell out in 30 minutes, you have everybody come here, and literally to the the last minute that the the, the show was going on, people were there. You know, Cody and the Bucks and Kenny and everyone was giving their speech to everybody standing in the audience, and I would estimate 9,500 of the 10,000 people were still there. And... You know, I think the only people that left was the family of the pe- penis druids. And he, th- that's like the only group that would have not st- stuck around because everyone just sat there and they were absorbing everything. And I think that was what was probably the most remarkable and different than like what a real indie show is like, where your friends and family get up after your match and leave yeah. or when the big star or has his. Last bell, last, last pinfall happens, everybody grabs their coat. Yeah, up, and it's leaves. ready to go. But people yeah. were like really into it. So that's, that's the optimistic scenario of all of this, where things are wonderful and there. Here is Mookie's cynical uh, uh, take on it. What if this is a giant infomercial? Mm. And the purpose of this infomercial is not starting a revolution and revitalizing professional wrestling. The purpose of this infomercial is to invest more and more stock into the marketing potential of the top stars of the show and allow them to negotiate and leverage the best deal possible for them and their families and their well-being regardless of how that affects the 10,000 fans sitting in that arena who think they're getting something else. Yeah. Um, I've talked a lot about this to you uh, off the air and, and in the hotel room when you're trying to sleep yes. and whatnot. What, what is your take on my very cynical view of what All In could also be? Well, 
there's there's been some talk that who Cody Bucks Kenny Omega they may be uh, up for uh, to be free agents at the end of this year, right? Mm-hmm. So you're saying that all in is, is sort of like a, a pilot almost to say, look at what we can do here, and wouldn't, wouldn't you want to do business with us? In in a sense, but it's also a, a, a challenge because it's saying not just look what we can do for business, look what we can disrupt your business with too. I, I was telling you last night, if WWE did not send a row of executives to the show, that was the biggest mistake of their life because there's so many learning opportunities from this entire uh, experiment that go outside just the pure show itself. When you think about the way that they marketed the show and the way that they correctly used social media, the way that they used storylines and using social media to build storylines in a meaningful way, people there knew what the being the elite storyline was. Yeah. And, and the guy who sat next to us, uh, a good friend of mine, was like, how do you follow any of this? How do you know any of this? And I said, well, part of it is that Dave Meltzer covers being the elite as if it is a TV show every week and tells me what the storylines are. Yeah. And for the longest time, I thought that was kind of like like silly why was he doing that now it makes sense because they literally built the storylines and angles and the the execution and the payoffs for the entire show on that show and so that's also intriguing because they didn't need a tv network they didn't need anything more than a youtube subscription a digital camera operator and and some talking boots how important do you think the tv shows that these stars were on was to the draw of this show so say ring of honor tv New Japan TV, whatever exposure those two companies give, gave these stars? Or was it all social media? Could this have been done without, without that TV? Like, is, is, it, is it that they, they were... Because well, these are Ring of Honor stars who are promoted by Ring of Honor, promoted by New Japan through traditional means of media, TV, pay-per-view, even a little bit of OTT. We're very lucky we don't have to do either or, right? That, that it can just be the whole How package. much? How much? Well, you know, that's like trying to say what is the best time to announce a match, what is statistically the perfect amount of time before you, you, you announce a match, that you execute the match, and then that, that's going to determine whether or not it's a success. Yeah. There, there's no way to perfectly put that into a, a statistic, a metric, or a heuristic that's going to make sense to you. Yeah. What, what's the bigger question about it is what were they able to do with the limited resources they had? And like I said before... The thing I thought was the greatest juxtaposition on this entire show was the NWA match followed by the Adam Page Joey Janela match because the NWA match was Cody's vision of pro wrestling to a T. Mm-hmm. It was the ensemble of guys coming out behind him. It was the matching outfits from everyone. Yeah. It was it looked the, like a sport coming out there. Yeah, the, the videos of them walking through the hallway to the entranceway. Yeah, it was the faces on one side and then the bunch of heels on the other side. It was the lineage with even Tim Storm being there behind right. uh, uh, Nick Aldis. It was the the video packages that were bringing it up where they, they, they were almost talking out of character about being the champion was important because it, it legitimized the entire purpose of professional wrestling was holding that title. And it wasn't about the who's going to have the best match. It was about what was the most important aspect to legitimize the entire pursuit of the mm-hmm. professional wrestling journey. And then that was immediately followed by a bunch of videos where Joey Janela is covered in ketchup in, in a, a hotel room. There's talking boots, and it's a spot fest, and it's like CZW 98, mm-hmm. and it's, it's just insanity. And yet, they both got over in the same crowd, and what I thought was shocking is I didn't see people that hated one and loved the other, or vice yeah. versa. That people were like, I'm cool with, with uh, rest in penis druids carrying off 
Adam Page after the, the, the entire event and, and, you know, a corded telephone, which must have confused a lot of the, the, the people in the audience here. Why was this cell phone attached to this large blocky object? Touch, touchtone phone. Yeah, a touchtone phone there. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm surprised it wasn't rotary where you could actually beat someone with a rotary phone. Yeah. Those things were heavy. Yeah. Um, I think people thought it was the noose. Yeah, yeah they did. It, I did hear people yelling, it's the noose. But it turned news. out to just be a white touchstone phone. <laughs> it's just a corded, a, uh, a braided cord. Yeah. Um, but, but just the fact that they were back-to-back and they didn't alienate this audience to me is amazing because you could argue one of them was really built up in a certain way on YouTube and the other was built up in a completely different way on YouTube where the 10 Pawns of Gold series that Dave Lagan has been directing mm-hmm. is, is really building one version of the storyline and the being the elite version uh, stuff it was a completely different one and yet the audience embraced both and that i think is the biggest win here is it's so hard to make something that pleases different elements of your audience at the same time i I was telling you about an improv a lot of times the challenge is not so much doing a show that the audience enjoys the challenge is finding the show that all of the audience is going to enjoy because if you have the bachelorette party and the woman with her adult parents and then the kids show up then the biker gang shows up in the corner and uh, the two regulars on the other side, and then the four performers, it's very hard for you to decide what kind of games do you want to play that are going to please this audience. And how much of them are they just tolerating versus how much are they actually enjoying? And so uh, it, it was intriguing to me that all in, all night, felt like they were finding things that the audience was all accepting, even though, like you said, there's a, or like I said, there's a very different vision of what professional wrestling is between Cody Rhodes' vision and Young Buck's vision. Yeah. And so when they talk about, we're going to stick together, we're going to be together, that's really interesting to me because I'm amazed that they were able to pull that off. You could almost feel that, you know, it'd be, feel like a, a movie cut together by five different directors. Yeah. You wouldn't necessarily say this is a cohesive vision, but it worked, in my opinion. I, I think with wrestling, and I, I, I agree with you what you're saying with comedy, I think with wrestling, sure, there are always going to be people who dislike this entire style of wrestling or this entire style of presentation, but I think there are a lot of wrestling fans, maybe the majority of wrestling fans who are like the kinds of wrestling fans who are here this weekend, I think they have an appetite for a variety of different styles and presentations of wrestling. So so not just like, I think there's an appetite within a given wrestling fan for that sports-like presentation that you saw with Cody and Nick Aldis. I think within that same sort of fan, there's also an appetite for, God, uh, penises walking down the aisle or whatever was happening. In, 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 or in just even that like Lucha Spot Fest that yeah. was the Young Bucks yeah. uh, six-man match there. Or, or you know, kind of that, that more st- the Okada story with, with Skrull, which was a little bit of comedy but also a lot of the kind of, you know, what if we have a differentiation between what it means to be a heavyweight yeah. and what it means to be a junior heavyweight. And, and, and I would say if, if you're structuring a card, I would want there to be like different maybe different presentations of wrestling throughout the card so that you don't get exhausted on one, like, super straightforward sports-like presentation style of wrestling. SCU, <laughs> SCU walking by the uh, table right now. And, um, like, it, 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 would, it would... I guess this is what I experienced as a fan. It would exhaust me, I guess, if, if there was, like, this, this, one, this one style of wrestling or this one style of presentation. I don't just mean, like, an in-ring style. I mean, like, what you're saying about... Um, yeah, it, it's tough if it's an all-deathmatch card. It's tough if it's all a cruiserweight flip yeah. card. It's tough if it's yeah. all a strong-style card. It's tough if you're just watching a single UFC show, period. Yeah, I think it's great to have croutons in there where, you know, you don't just want to serve people... That'd be like, a good wrestling uh, gimmick, the wrestling crouton. Yeah. Brandon you know, Howard Thurston. You don't just want to serve people greens after greens as much as you think that's all that I eat. <laughs> Um, well, let, let's talk attendance here. So 10,000 people, mm-hmm. um, as has been pointed out by many, you, you, there's a lot of places in the world that have drawn 10,000. 
There's a lot of Puerto Rico companies, Puerto Rico, that draw ten thousand. Uh, minor league baseball, yeah, soccer. Uh, lots of different companies do, but professional wrestling. There's not a lot of examples of that, and so there has been some interesting examples when you go back and you say. What is the history of companies that are kind of on the fringes that have been able to succeed in this manner? And, and you and I were kind of working on the list of it. And it's intriguing to me to kind of look at it to be like, well, uh, obviously the first one that comes up all the time is AAA. Mm-hmm. So people, and we're probably leaving out a lot of draws in Puerto Rico at, at Roberto Clemente Stadium. Yes. And, that, and part of that is just the, the poor record keeping and the language barrier. Which is, you know, so often you don't know the successes of people that use a language slightly different than yours. Yeah. And it's always very disappointing. Yeah. But, like, so you have AAA, and you, so you have uh, August 93 with the, the Conan Sincaris, uh, uh, Jake, Jake Roberts. Roberts. You know, that's 16,000, 17,000 people and a huge turnaway. You have uh, uh, 94 March, you have uh, the revenge between Conan and Jake Roberts. And these are all in L.A. And that's 13,000. You have the Win Worlds Collide pay-per-view in, in November of 94. That's that the, draws. the event that probably most people listening would be familiar with. Yeah, with like the, the, the 13,000. And then there was other times in L.A. that AAA drew more than, than 10,000. Like in, in November of 93, they drove like, they drew maybe 12,500. And then yeah. in July, 8,500. And in August of 94, maybe 8,000. And the reason I bring that up is because I think that's a good example of what is one model of a draw. One model of a draw is you find a demographic group that will resonate with the stories that you're telling because they have a cultural connection or a history or a background in that. So how did AAA draw those 10,000 plus? I mean, it, from I wasn't there. I wasn't in the arena. But my assumption is it was the Mexican and Mexican-Americans and the Hispanic population that was living in L.A., or could even travel from Mexico, but more of it, the, the ones that were already living there that were interested in going to the arena. And, and Dave will often say one of the elements of that that he saw was it was so much walk-up culture, and that's much more of a Mexican thing than it is in and the American tri- culture. Tri- AAA TV is probably available in L.A. in I think it was, Yeah, I think it was on TV. I think you could also get it kind of over-the-border type TV, too. Right? Some of the stations were, were Pick it up on the antenna. Yeah. But, uh, uh, so I think that was part of it. And so that's one model is that you can find a specific group and really dedicate towards that. And, you know, I think about that a lot where I live because there's a lot of Hmong population. There's big Somali population. And when they want to run a festival, they can draw thousands of people to these festivals. And you can be in living in a neighborhood next door and know nothing about it because it doesn't hit your media. It doesn't hit your radar. It doesn't hit your friends list. There's no connection to it. But yet you can draw thousands of people because there's a cultural connection in some way. And so I do think that that's one element of it is that you can, you can market to a group that is going to have its own dedicated media. It's going to have its own dedicated stars. It's going to have its own dedicated kind of presentation aspect. Do you, do you think there's like demographic groups like if, if it's a Hispanic population in California or, or, or whatever that maybe there isn't a lot of culture, a lot of entertainment that's really directed and geared for them? I think that's the complaint of almost any minority group in an area. Is so that so they're that not if, if you do have something that's, that's really geared toward, towards this demographic group who doesn't have a lot of entertainment geared towards them, whereas, you know, the average, you know, whoever, middle I, America, white, white guy like you and me, we've got all this stuff that's geared well, towards but us. But, I mean, I think one of the reasons All In Draws is that it is people coming here and seeing other people that are wrestling fans and not feeling like they're, they're going to be berated, they're going to be demeaned, that they're going to be questioned, that they're going to be curious and they're not that they're just WWE fans that they're wrestling fans yeah. that you can wear a New Japan shirt here and people aren't going to think of it that you're referring to Shinsuke Nakamura of 20 
17, but you might be referring to an entire lineage going back decades and decades. And that's really important to people that, you know, you can sit down at breakfast and have a conversation with someone and you can actually get into, okay, this is what I like. This is what I didn't like about the show. And, you know, you're not look, you know, I I sent a picture of the Druids to my friends yesterday. And of course people are like, what the F, what is happening here? I don't understand what it is you're possibly at and doing. So there's that. So I, I do think that this is a different form of kind of a cultural gathering for people. And that's one thing that makes it successful is that you feel like you're part of a clan or a group and this is giving you a bond. Or this is kind of a community that's mostly on the internet and is kind of on weekends like this and weekends like WrestleMania, maybe some of the other big WWE pay-per-view events around the year, maybe SummerSlam, but definitely WrestleMania this weekend where that, that stuff that's usually kept to the internet it comes to life through people traveling in and so forth. So, so Model 1 is kind of this cultural bond. Now, model 2, in my mind, is more of the super show. And the super show is oftentimes saying, here's the style or here's the concept of what we're doing with wrestling. And if we put enough of it together in a way that makes it seem like this is unique and special, we can make a big deal out like of that. And multiple the exact- promotions, multiple stars. Yeah, where it's, it's not necessarily saying I have one star that is hot enough for me to build this entire thing around. And the example I go back to is, is like Dream Slam yeah. or, or like a Big Egg Dome. Uh, where it's like Big Ed Dome in, in November 94 drew 32,000 people. And these are all Japan women's shows, but it was very interpromotional. Yeah, and, and in that aspect, it's kind of saying, we think women's wrestling is important. We think the style of wrestling that we're pre- presenting here is important, and that we will take the absolute best workers from all the promotions, put them all on the same card, run like a seven- or eight-hour card, and by sell a bre- ton of merch. And then sell a ton of merch. And then it, by doing this, we'll prove that we have the best style, that we have the best opportunity, and that you can enjoy this with us. And I think that's, that's another model, is that you don't necessarily have to say, I have the one best star or I have the one best thing. But you can say, I'm going to present the very best version of putting all of this thing that we all agree on together. So maybe that would be like a King of the Death match type thing, where you're saying, I'm presenting the very best death match stars from all these different promotions and putting them here in Kawasaki Stadium. Yeah. You know, th- there's opportunities to do that that too so that's a big thing and and you brought up the merch and that's the thing i always go back to is what dream slam and and big egg dome and things are famous for is that they had something like a hundred dollars a head in merch and that's absurd how's that compared to wrestlemania like wrestlemania i think was 20 maybe 12 15 20 something like that and like the normal wwe is like 10 i think yeah yeah okay so on a normal wwe show yeah. So, yeah. and that's a lot. I mean, ten dollars a head is still a lot. But I was thinking about it today. That's I was still like, like half of your audience buying a shirt. Yeah. If if you think about where we are today with with um, all in ten thousand people, we estimate the gate is going to be about half a million dollars, give or take, maybe a hundred grand. But about a half a million dollars because of the ticket prices being low yeah. on what the the promoters would actually receive. Now, they, there's scalpers and others who have made money off this, but let's say half a million, ten thousand people. If you did fifty bucks a head. That's another half million dollars. This would be an example where if you rolled in all the money that StarCast generated and treated that kind of like a merch amount for the 10,000 people that came to All In, they probably made more on quote-unquote merch than they did actually on LiveGate, which is interesting because that's not normally a one-to-one ratio for a show. And costs for merchandise and costs for running a show. The profit margin is very different. You know, the profit margin on a pay-per-view is... X here, you know, it might be 50%. The profit margin on the WWE Network is like 25 to 30%. The profit margin on a t-shirt is sometimes 20%. So it, it is a very different margin structure, I but I think from a, a revenue shirt, structure... You get a shirt for like 5 five to 10, depending on how much you yeah, buy. Yeah, so I'm thinking if you're selling it for like 20, 20, 25. So I'm, that's why I was saying 20, 25, yeah. minus any licensing going on with it. Um, 
but I just thought that's another aspect is that when you do the super indie, when you put all the people together, one aspect of it that often jumps out is that there's a lot of merch sold. And the reason for that is because you have 10 different promotions and the fans there might want to buy shirts from two or three different promotions versus when you go to a WWE show, you might have the one or two stars of WWE that you want to buy the shirt for, but you don't feel like you're really buying for different promotions or supporting different acts by your the way you're doing it there. So I do wonder if we could actually put all the numbers together if, A, we would prove that the total merch number for, for All In Weekend was bigger than the, the live gate. And I think in an aspect, that is what the Bucks always believed in. Like, if you were to say, what is the genius of the Bucks? It's the fact that they believe so heavily in the ability to use merchandising to supplement their income to be probably 50% of the revenue they make in a year. And, and while there's a lot of merch here at StarCast, which is where we're talking at right now, there... I went and got a pretzel at one point. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if you walked around Was it around branded? Much. Was it black? Did it say the, 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 the pretzel club? It, no, oh. it didn't. They, more people would probably bought pretzels if they were bullet club pretzels. <laughs> but uh, there was no, there was, I heard there was one merch stand, maybe two. In, yeah, in, and there in, was the, like, in the venue. people were like, there was a line. I thought it was a meet and greet. I thought, you know, like Bernard the Business Bear was handing out, you know, free business advice. And they're like, no, no, it was, it was like the one merch stand that was set up in the corner. And I had been telling you leading up to the show, oh, God. I bet you no one's buying T-shirts here because they all want to go to All In. They're going to buy all these T-shirts. And we showed up, and we never saw any merch. And, and maybe it's just an issue of everybody owns their own merch here. Yeah, it's not it, as if WWE's vending the merch out. But it, that, that, I think, is the one thing where I would have thought this was going to be like a big egg dome. Hey, we did a $50 a head, which is $100 for half the people and zero from the other. But I think that they, they didn't market it right in the arena there. And that would probably be the, one of the biggest areas I would have said. You still get. I know to you... You're thinking, all they have to do is just go to the, the Hyatt Regency and go to the, all, the StarCast thing. They can buy the gear. I can't even get in the vendor room without a, a pass. So I can't even go in and buy stuff. And that always blows my mind when people are like putting up hurdles for me to go and give them money. I can't even Nothing get my drives them club more. tattoo. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, if it was me, I would have given the, the parking lot attendants, I would have sold them en masse 50 Bullet Club shirts and just said, you can do 20 here, or if you give me 50, I'll give you a Bullet Club shirt with it and let those people pocket the extra 10 or whatever. You know, the whole money-making opportunity. Yeah. So, so model number two is you take all the indies, all the, the, the top promotions, all the stars, and you create a mega event out of it. Yeah. And you do dream matches. Yeah. And when you're talking about like All Japan Women's, I would say that's like a bundle of promotions that are of a similar genre. Yes. So you're, you're presenting a, a cohesive vision. They're of probably what, attracting a, a similar audience. Yeah, and incredibly. In that case, it was you know a lot of women coming to the show. So, you know, very kind of the uh, uh, antithesis, some would say, of, of some indie events here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the third model, one of the largest draws in the U.S., one that people rarely talk about, uh, Memphis Memories, Mid-South Coliseum, drew a little under 8,000 people. And so that's the other idea. You, you can draw a show on nostalgia. You can just say, here's all the stars from your youth that you can't see anymore, and I will give you an opportunity to see those people, and this is a draw. This is an opportunity there. And, and Memphis is, is probably the king of that. And to a degree, that's what the wrestling convention has kind of absorbed, is that vision of saying, instead of actually making them go in there and throw a terrible fireball and watch Moon's, Moondog's spot and, and be sad for him, you can just go and you can shake his hand, you can get an autograph, you can talk to him, etc. And so the, I feel like the wrestling convention has kind of absorbed some of that area of what used to be a way to promote a wrestling show. But you still see that to this day. You're on indie shows. You, you have, you know, Bret Hart's going to come and wave to the audience. Or, yeah. or here's Goldberg's shoe, and sure. you can take a picture with Goldberg's shoe. And that's always parlayed with a meet and greet. Yeah. Do you know what the main event was for Memphis Memories in 1994? I do. Jerry Lawler won a, uh, a 10-man elimination match against Terry Funk, Moondog Spot, 
no Doug Gilbert, Ed, Eddie Austin Gilbert. Idol, Brian Christopher, Doug Gilbert, Eddie Gilbert, Jimmy Valiant, Coco Beware. Oh, you're right. Moon Dog Spot, Terry Funk, and Tommy Rich in 42 minutes. Do you think I don't know my Moon Dog Spot trivia? Yeah. Uh, so yes, that that. Uh, so that's another model. So model number three, you do a, a legend show and you bring in those people. And that's another way to draw is you kind of remind people, this is not what you, what we do today what's, what's is not what you love. So this is 1994. Is like, is, yeah. is, is Lawler that far out of his prime in 1994? Is, no, is he a nostalgia but, act? No, but the rest of it is the nostalgia act. And it was called Mid-South Legends. Okay. So like Austin Mid-South Idol, Mid-South Me- Me- uh, Memories, yeah. The Funk. Yeah, the yeah. Funk it, it was a big deal to bring back all of these guys. Okay, okay yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, 95, the other example I give, uh, Kawasaki Stadium, May 5th, 1995. Retirement at Sushi Anita against Hayabusa. Mm-hmm. Had, of, had done Kawasaki Stadium two years before this, 93 with Terry Funk, 94 with Tenru. Yes. Did, did really well. Yes, and so another way you can draw a giant crowd, in this case they drew more than 50,000, let's say. You know, it was a huge audience. It's, it's, it's Japanese numbers, and it's... it's I have 52,000 in air quotes. Yeah, but it was an enormous thing, and you could argue this is what gets Onita into the Hall of Fame, is his ability to be such a charismatic star. And if someone says... No TV. Oh, there was a little bit of TV. They were on... A, Commercial um, tapes. Yeah, I mean, it's not like UWF or whatever, or Rings or whatever was the one that was selling out all the events in advance without, you know, with very little work. Um, they, they had a little, but it was mostly, yes, it was mostly that they would sell the videotapes of that, they had distribution deals, and that... And I would, it, I would suggest, I've never been to Japan, but I, would, I, I know, like, magazines are, are super popular, especially probably were even more popular in the 90s, and just, the, I, w- I would imagine these pictures of Onita in death matches doing whatever he was doing was, you know, a spectacle. Yeah, and he built a fan base. Just, I mean, I think of CM Punk or someone is maybe a, a comparable figure where, you know, you had people that came in to see Anita and when Anita left, they left. They were drawn in by the spectacle, the charisma. And at the time, Anita was going to retire. He's going to go into movies. He, he, you know, thought about politics and other things. He, he really thought he could be bigger. He was going to die. Yeah. And at the same time, he was also fighting a lot with the companies over, like, who owned which company and the switchover of the company and financial things. And he took a giant cuts of these gates. He, you know, he also beat Hayabusa in his retirement match. Yes, because Onita, Onita's, you know, in his vision, why would he be, you know, kind of losing to, to as much as, as he respected, he also resented Hayabusa. And they, they didn't always have the same vision. But if you want to learn more about that, you should be listening to the History of FMW podcast with, with uh, Bahu and Steven. Um, but that's another model, is that you can promote the Shawn Michaels is going to retire, Flair is going to retire, uh, Hogan is going to retire. Whatever it's going to be, you can re- promote that as a retirement match as a way to get a big gate. Is the you have the single charismatic star, and the challenge with that again is it's terminal, right? You can't just keep doing that over and over again. You're going to run out of things. It, to a degree, it's a little bit of the AAA model because the mask versus hair is in sort of, in a sense, sort of a retirement. Is is that you're retiring your mask or you're losing your hair, and that's going to be a big loss for you because L- that's like a, a career, you're, here's something that you invested a lot of capital in, and now we're going it, to it, it's, it's up. Risk. Yeah, and if you're struggling with hair, hymns.com. Um, yeah, uh, I, I know someone who's struggling with hair right now. <laughs> and then, you know, you and I were even talking about, like, I think people, there's legend, there's shows and promotions that have created greater legends in themselves than they ever really were. So ECW is a great example, where ECW's biggest shows were not at the ECW arena, probably for legendary status and whatnot they were. But, you know, the biggest shows for ECW would have been like... In terms when, of attendance. Yeah, they would have drawn 6,000, 5,800, 5,700, 5,000. And that was in, like, you know, Villa Park, so close to Chicago, New Orleans, yeah. L.A., Mississauga, you mm-hmm. know, which I know is outside of Toronto. Yes. Uh, you know, but it's funny because, you know, big paper 
pay-per-views. Some of these markets, they had Birmingham, Alabama. Terrible television. Some of these yeah. markets, they had very little television. And you could argue... You were crowdsourcing on Twitter. Did, did, was television... How available do you think television was in these markets? Villa Park, New Orleans, Los Angeles, Mississauga, Birmingham, Alabama, Monica, Pennsylvania... When I, when I used to watch ECW, it aired at 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. on the MSG Network in Rochester, New York, which meant I had to stay up on Saturday night. Saturday night, I could usually watch like a WCW Pro. I could watch, uh, uh, there was like some bad syndicated show that was like on for an hour. Some of your favorite wrestling programs. So. Yeah. Then I would watch like Barney Miller for an hour, yeah. and then like ECW would come on. And it was fun to watch ECW at the time. You but didn't get the Empire Sports Network in Rochester? No, we did not get the Empire Sports so, Network. So we, we had ES, ECW on Empire Sports at probably a similar time slot, like 1 in the morning on, a, on like a Saturday night, late Sunday. And, and it sounds like a lot of these other people are saying, yeah, that's kind of when it aired. It's like at midnight or 1 a.m. on this one channel. And so, of course, it's a cult cool thing. But you're never going to draw a 10,000-person audience building it that way. But in a way, ECW wasn't drawing it on that. And you can almost see that they're going to these other marketplaces because it's much easier oftentimes to go to a marketplace you're not in and make it seem like you're a big deal that one time than it is to be there doing it month after month after month in Pennsylvania. And I bring up all of this to say what is All In? What was All In? Was it a, a, was it a, a legend show? Was it a collection of, of the best small promotion show? Was it a uh, built on a single charismatic star show? Was it culturally relative to a small subsection of the population? What would you say it is? Or is it something completely different? Is it its own category, this fifth idea? I think it's an event where, where fans wanted to support a few big stars. And it was supported by a lot of, you know, a lot of other stars too in supporting roles. But I think people wanted to come out and like almost individually support the Young Bucks and Cody. To, to a lesser extent, Kenny Omega and, and others who are involved. I, I do think, to a degree, it might remind me a little bit more of like the All Japan model, where it's that you're going to get the entire spectrum of stars. And so if you are not sure whether you really care about Kenny Omega or you really care about Young Bucks or you really care about Okada or you really care about Cody Rhodes or you really care about uh, Rey Mysterio, that's okay because you get all of out. them. This show sold out before any of that was announced. Most of that wasn't. I mean, we, we knew some people were all in at first. Like, we knew which stars might be there. Not necessarily all those names I mentioned. But I, I think that appeal was partially to that. Like, you kind of felt like you were getting that whole spectrum. And, of course, everything builds upon itself. So I think the WrestleCon, when that was getting really hot and people were like, oh, my gosh, people are excited that Kenny Omega and Kota Ibushi are going to appear on the same show in the United States together. People wanted to go see that. New Japan started to come into the U.S. and people said, oh, I'm really excited that I'm going to be able to see this New Japan presentation. I'm finally going to get that Billy Gunn versus Tanahashi match that I've been dreaming about every day. And Billy's going to start the Billy Club and it's going to be the best faction in all of New Japan. Yes. Um, I, I, th- I think you're printing those shirts right now, the Billy Club shirts. I am. But I, am. I, th- I think what we're going to see, and I, th- I think like the Janela shows, the WrestleMania Janela shows, and I know they did uh, the Lost in New York one not that long ago. And I know that stuff is kind of through Game Changer, right, which is, is itself a promoter. But I think we're seeing more of these shows that are centered around an individual star. I mean, we saw the, the Jericho angle. Of course, Jericho came out in the Pentagon outfit and, and did this angle with Kenny Omega and said... To, to promote his cruise. I'm going to see you at the cruise. Yeah. Um, so that's an individually promoted show by Jericho. Yeah. I, you know, all in kind of an individually promoted show among the Bucks and Cody. Um, I think as time goes on, maybe this is less about like, oh, look at how big independent wrestling is becoming and more about like... As I was saying to you in the car last night, and think about McGregor 
had a big fight. I know he has a fight coming up, but there was talk about like, well, Conor McGregor is going to have a big fight, and he's going to want to co-promote it with UFC so that he can, sh- be, you know, be the promoter and share the profits. Yeah, the with, Oscar with de UFC. la Hoya model, the 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 the, uh, yeah. I'm sorry, I was just uh, the M1 uh, Fedor model. You know, where you yeah. basically say, if you want to do cut, business cut with me, why, why got, do I am you, part of the middle. I, I wonder, as like, especially because the, it's the promoters who would would control the the media, right? They would control the promotion device. They they control the TV. If, if all these wrestlers can do stuff on social media and on YouTube, I know it's not nearly as powerful as, as TV, but maybe they can, you know, they're more able to run their own shows, they're more able to cut out the middleman, and they probably can't do it 52 weeks a year, but they can at least do these super shows once a year. Maybe as time goes on and the and new media becomes even more ubiquitous, maybe they can do it even more often than that. Yeah, that, that's kind of one question is like, people keep saying what is going to be all in two, and... If it was me, I would probably look at Europe because then you avoid the, the, the yeah. fact that you have to compare number one and number two. Is that you put it into a different arena to a different set of fans and a different thing. And if it goes really well, great. If it doesn't go really well, you have that excuse to kind of be able to say, well, maybe we should have just stayed in the U.S. You, you would expect a passionate fan base there in, in the U.K. If you, if, so you run an all-into in London. I think so, and I think in a, in a certain way, again, if you're going to Chris's conspiratorial theory, uh, if you want to improve your value the most in this wrestling world, the number one way of doing it is scare WWE every way you can. What's the best way to scare it? Number one, draw 10,000 people in Chicago. Number two, draw 10,000 people in the UK. When you do that, that's going to scare people to death because that's the two places that WWE really doesn't want to look foolish is in America and then in the UK. They're number one and they're number two markets. And that's going to scare WWE to make you a nice offer. That I would imagine. So again, if you're being conspiratorial, you would look at it that way and say, this is an infomercial. That's what all in is. It's an infomercial on the value of these people. And when you're making an infomercial, you're sometimes willing to pay for television. And when I say pay for television, in this case, it's not necessarily that they paid directly. They paid an opportunity cost. You sell your tickets for 20 bucks, and instead of 40 bucks, you might have given up a quarter million dollars. But you know what? The, t- the first contract one of those guys signs is now a quarter million dollars higher. And if you think about it, it's kind of bizarre that like one of these guys' contracts, where they're going to go, is probably still going to be bigger than the whole live gate. In one year, one of these wrestlers will make more money on their, whatever their new contract is than the whole live gate, plus possibly all the merch that was sold here this weekend. Sure. Yeah. You know. I, I, that's like you know, one day or a few days of business. So, yeah. yeah. It's just funny yeah. to me, too, because it's like, you know, we, we, we obsess over the idea that this wrestler could be making a million dollars or this wrestler could make a million and a half dollars. And then you look at professional sports leagues and you look at the, the baseball contracts and the football contracts that are out there and in some degrees, even sometimes the soccer contracts mm-hmm. in the U.S., let alone, you know, the football contracts in Europe. I, I think I read something in the Wall Street Journal about this recently. <laughs> I was finally quoted in the journal. That's right. My article came out with uh, Spencer Jacobs. Uh, there was two versions of the article. There's the web version where uh, uh, Dave... Meltzer is referred to as David Meltzer, which I, I thought was, was especially funny. Were you referred to as Christopher Harrington? No, I was referred to as Chris Harrington. I was referred to as, as uh, uh, WrestleNomics Radio Podcast host. Uh, so Brandon does not exist. To my right, once again, I'm gesturing to an empty I, I, section of I, I think you referred to as a co-host. Did, did I actually say co-host on there? I, no, I, I think it said host. But uh, I, I was joking because it does probably annoy an old media guy who's printing in a, in a newspaper to talk about 
a radio podcast when we're not on the radio in any way that yeah. I'm aware of. A, a, a Laserdisc TV show will be our next step, I think. Yes, exactly. But uh, So that was fun. That, that article finally came out. And, of course, my, uh, uh, my, my weeks of, of back and forth with him, giving all my contrarian views and all my, my pitfalls and discussing uh, all my concerns about the leadership yeah. of George you Barrios. Reveal, there's a, a great deal of dialogue. Yes. And, I, and, I was even sourced for some of these. Yes, things. and the end of, end of all of this was a single line quote for me saying, it's astonishing, which I even questioned was in reference to the paragraph it was in. But uh, it was fine. I did. I'm sure I You're said the word to him on the phone. Yeah. If it said it's a bifurcated system, I would have believed for sure that yes. was something I said. But bifurcation, absolutely. Is, is definitely a, a mooky word. It just occurred to me. There's a, there's a, there is, in fact, a projector screen here. In oh, case my we, gosh. We, we, could have, we could have been doing a PowerPoint right now this entire time. Excel spreadsheets right up there right now. But what I was going against is um, the, the other question you and I had about leadership in WWE. And this was yeah. a question that was asked to me was, does Barrios have a great he, he's got to be the most keen guy in this business because look how much he's grown WWE over all this time. Just in the last 12 months, the stock has grown by some, four times or something yeah. like that. And, and, and I kind of said, I have my doubts. And he was like, why would you have your doubts about it? And, and this was something I've had a very hard time explaining why I have my doubts. And I think last night I tried to really put it to you. To people who are not in the wrestling business, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Yeah, because what my challenge is this. Vince McMahon, for his faults and his greatness, is still devoted and thinking about the creative aspects of professional wrestling, booking, marketing, and, and, and creation. That he wants to put on events, he wants people to be excited by these events, he wants to do something bigger each time, he wants to be respected for his prowess and his genius and his ability to draw people in. But at the same time, he's thinking about star creation, he's thinking about how to write a television show. If you asked Vince McMahon how to format a year's worth of television, he would know how to do that. He gets that intuitively. He can even look at an angle and say, this is a good idea, this is not a good idea. Now, I'm not saying his instincts are right, but he gets it. Yeah. And, and he, he's he been wants proven the audience to react in the way that he wants them to react. And, and he's been proven right enough in his life that you could always say at some point in his life he had his finger on the pulse at the right things. Yeah. And as I say again and again, like, there's no economic incentive, especially in the, in the world that we live in now where you've got a giant upgrade in TV rights fees. There's no economic incentive to do anything different as far as he can tell. Look, I mean, look, look at the look at the training schedule. You're doing better and better. Yeah, the opportunity cost to him is not huge uh, right now. But the flip of it is, when I think about Barrios, when I think about Michelle Wilson, and I pick on them because they're co-presidents, which to me puts them at a very high level in this company. At the beginning of this year, they were promoted. Yeah, and and what I struggle with is the idea of would they understand what star creation means to their business? Or is their interest in professional wrestling purely that they manage a balance sheet and that happens to be an asset that they sell? And that's why you, you see WWE investing in the Cloud9 e-gaming team and investing in the tout service and investing in the, the, um, the, the tap-out brand for athletic wear, JCPenney's, and all these things that aren't really about professional wrestling, but rather about a brand management that in some ways to them might not even be as filthy or as scummy or as awkward as talking about being a professional wrestling promoter. And that's once where I always while, struggle. Once in a while, Barrios does bring out a presentation with, you know, here's Bruno Sammartino. Here's the lineage of the star power. Bruno Sammartino, we're not going to mention Hulk Hogan. Charlotte uh, gets mentioned in there a lot. Who else? The Rock. Yes, you know? yeah, yeah. Like he has his presentation where he evolves the yes. people from, from version A to version B. And so I think there, Andre the Giant yes, became Andre Ronda Rousey. yeah. Because the probably because the Honor the Giant documentary just came out. But like well, a, I was thinking because they're both Steph McMahon's best friend. Exactly. But uh, there, there is some sort of acknowledgement, a little bit of like, yeah, stars are 
a piece of this business. But in the in the in the sorts of presentations that we see, the conference calls that we hear, all the documents that we look at, it's kind of like WWE produce their media company, but they kind of produce widgets. They they yes. they do a, they do yes. a big TV show. They do this big network. And and I think that's the challenge is that I would always say, you can't be a Steve Jobs in charge of Apple and not have a mission and a vision for what your brand does and does not do. Mm-hmm. And the challenge I always have with them is I don't feel like if Vince McMahon were to pass away or become incapacitated and stop in his role. Or to go on a vacation. Or, or go to XFL or where, whatever. Where he just ran the XFL from his smartphone. Yeah. yeah. If he went away, I don't feel like either of those people would be the person you go to and say, what is your vision for WWE about the way you promote professional wrestling? Not, not a big question going on about what is, what is happening with WWE when it comes to the pieces here. I, I see I have a friend here standing right, right at the, the table. How are you doing, sir? Okay. Uh, and just the vision that what is our challenge around what does it mean? Do, are you in the business of building stars? Are you in the business of, of trying to do as many live events as possible? So, so do you think... So, right. The, it's Vince McMahon, and immediately below them, who we're talking about is Michelle Wilson, George Berrios, co-presidents. Do you think they're really encouraged to have a vision, a creative vision, or have any sort of creative input? And we're not talking about, like, booking week to week, right? We're talking sort of like a... What's a star look like? How should a star be promoted? Yeah, and what, 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 is, what is your relationship with your audience? Is your vision of your audience that you're telling them who the stars are going to be? Is your vision of the audience that the brand is more important than star creation? And so you're, the important thing to do there is to make sure that you never have any star that can put you in a vice yeah. that could hold you up or create a union or do anything else. It, it, it's a risk to have. I, I, I felt the impression is that there, you know, we don't necessarily want to, but, the, but then you see, you know, well, Roman Reigns is, is, is presented as a big star. John Cena is presented as a big star. But I think... There is some sort of risk to them in that, hey, if there's a, there are one or two big stars here, what if that star gets injured and, and, or what if that star decides not to do wrestling anymore, CM Punk? Yeah, and, and that also goes to the other aspect that we got into very deep yesterday, which is about this whole idea of independent contractors. And one question I asked Dave Meltzer and Brian Alvarez at, at the Q&A at the, the Observer uh, session was, do we think that the status quo of what independent contractor status is for wrestlers today will evolve in the next three to five years? And the examples I gave was, you have Paul Levesque's idea that there's going to be global localization. He announces at the Business Partner Summit in 2018. I think it was reported briefly, and then I think a lot of people forgot about it. But basically, the idea is that we have a worldwide network of different um, NXT Territories, Developmental territories all over the world. Yeah, and there would be one in Latin America. There would be, of course, one in the United States. There would be one in probably England. There would be one India, in South America. either India. There might be one in Saudi Arabia if they want to pay enough money. Uh, whatever it is, they would have this network here. And I was saying, if you are a quote-unquote wrestler, and then you're told, I want you to go move to the Latin America territory. I want you to go move to the India territory. Seems like a very hard stretch to say that you're still an independent contractor in that situation. Seems like that's very difficult for you to make that argument that, yeah, I'm just a guy, but my boss told me to go move to another country and live there and train people. That's a really big stretch. And so that's going to be one area that's going to make it tough. Two, the whole idea of what an independent contractor is under U.S. law might look very differently if you're being promoted and living and spending all your time in another country all the time. Mm -hmm. Number three, I think what will be a, a really curious example would be if Vince McMahon left the picture, would the legal risk to the company of being declassified as independent contractors be so high that at some point Michelle or George or their legal counsel is just going to say to them, look, 
You can avoid having to settle all the time. You can avoid having to argue about insurance if you adopt more like a UFC model where you basically say, yeah, you do all work for us. Yeah, I can tell you what to do with your time. I can tell you where to be here. I can tell you what to dress. I can tell you this, but I will in exchange give you insurance and hey, we can now negotiate a big risk pool. And then this way we have a lot less concerns that we're going to get a big lawsuit. And we've seen cases in the in, in the past where like, I think it was Tiger Ali Singh, he yeah. went to Puerto Rico to go work for IWA Puerto Rico. And they like wrestled in a wet ring and he got hurt. Mm-hmm. And then he tried to basically say, WWE, I got hurt when you sent me to Puerto Rico. And WWE wanted to just basically be like, no, you're an independent contractor. You're responsible for your own injury. You weren't on our show. Mm-hmm. And there was kind of a, a give and take about like if they send contracted wrestlers to go work for other promoters and they get injured, who pays for that? And there's already, not, not even in past times in other countries, which are maybe WWE promotions, maybe not. But there's, there's instances today of like, is WWE going to pay for your surgery or not? Yeah, and it's like, okay, if you get injured in the middle of WrestleMania, yeah, they'll probably pay for your surgery. What if you get injured in the dark match? Yeah, they'll probably pay for your surgery. What if, they, what if you get injured backstage before the show? Well, they'll probably pay for it. Well, what if you get injured in the hotel the morning of a show because you're there working out? Well, that's a little fuzzier. What if you get injured... Uh, on an off day but you're working out because you're supposed to stay in shape a certain amount well that gets even more great and then you get to the point well what if you're Randy Orton you're taking out the trash and you break your your shoulder will they pay for that or will they not pay for that and so that's that's a very different world what, what where if you've it's been wrestling a star for years and years and, and your knees are just disintegrated there's no more cartilage left you yeah. need double knee replacement yeah what if you're a jobber who's been brought in to do a 205 taping and suddenly you, you get injured on that 205 taping will or, WWE pay for that or maybe you're already injured Maybe you're already injured and you suddenly realize, if I work a, a, work a WWE show, this will happen. The last piece of this is, with the global localization effort, one of the biggest things they're doing is they're bringing in people from around the world who oftentimes, when you're trying to do international recruiting, you're not bringing in more and more wrestlers. Because a lot of these places aren't going to have a huge wrestling culture. Saudi Arabia, if you're going to go hire five guys out of Saudi Arabia, the chance that most of them have been professionally wrestling trained is very low. They're probably CrossFit athletes. They're probably bodybuilders. They're probably, maybe they're, they're even Olympians or, 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 or soccer athletes. They're just something famous there. But So you think the more WWE signs people who are not necessarily people who have this lifelong ambition to be pro wrestlers who are not not so worried if they leave WWE they're not so worried about continuing a pro wrestling career yes. and so my whole idea they're not was worried about getting sort of blackballed yeah like if you're an American Ninja Warrior and you go into wrestling and you're you you get tired of it or get hurt you feel you're treated really poorly and you then say hey I'm gonna sue WWE because they treated me like I was an independent contractor they made me pay for my cars my hotel my food and my insurance mm-hmm. and they dropped me the moment I looked like I either wasn't gonna live up to some expectations they created for me or because I was too hurt to continue competing and they didn't give me time off like I wanted that person sounds like they have great standing and doesn't give a F about whether or not they are going to be blackballed from the wrestling industry because the reality is they can go on the CrossFit circuit they can go on the Comic Con circuit and sign American Ninja Warrior Autographs. They can just go and be a, a normal person, go get a job and, and do something else. That's fine, too. And so I just think that WWE is also running the risk that if they continue to kind of keep the system where they pretend it's an independent contractor, but they, they or it is independent contract, but they treat them completely the opposite, that eventually you're going to get someone withstanding. Because the biggest challenge to getting sued on this is the statute of limitations for Connecticut is really short, like three years. And I think it's even something like it's three years from the last incident of when 
It, it could even be three years from the date you signed your contract. That's yeah. the other part I'm never clear on. And so that means you can really have a very tight timetable where most of the reason the CTE lawsuits aren't going very far is either A, the injuries and the wrestling that was claimed happened before 2005, which is kind of the time that they made the declaration that this is when we're going to say WWE knew what CTE was, mm-hmm. or the fact that the statute of limitations ran out on those wrestlers to even file. So I think the best aspect you're going to have is probably that it's going to be an NXT or a very, 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 very low-level WWE person who doesn't want to do it anymore. It's going to be a, a developmental wrestler who is probably and, I mean, we saw that. not on the main roster. Big Russ McCullough, Evan Singleton. We've seen developmental wrestlers yeah. who have been the ones who have, have pushed some of these lawsuits. Yeah, and those, actually those, are, those are plaintiffs in the... Uh, they CTE were plaintiffs, yeah, were. yeah, yeah, yeah. They've almost all been dismissed completely. So, so I would think in the, in the last three, four years, since 2014 or so... Triple H has started to hire a lot more independent wrestlers. It seems like they value independent wrestlers, and they value independent wrestling success a lot more than they did in the past. So you'd think their propensity to, to hire people who are from other aspects of sports or entertainment you know, is, is lower, but yet at the same time, they're hiring more talent than ever. I think that's the, the thing, is that we think of the Matt Riddles and the Keith Lees of the world, and we say, oh, WWE hires pro wrestlers. They hired Samoa Joe. They hired AJ Styles. They're going to hire the box or whatever they're going to think. But when you actually look at the training class and you look at the pictures of the 20 people going up there, you're like, oh, that's Simone Biles' boyfriend. He's an Olympian gymnast. He's not a pro wrestler. Oh, that's a former football star. Oh, that's an Olympic sprinter, and that's a, that's a college athlete, and that's a, 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 a high-level jiu-jitsu uh, compete, comp- competitor. But those aren't pro wrestlers. So like, when they actually look at the class that they're bringing in, a lot of times they're not bringing in people who either – had a lot of pro wrestling experience or they have none there are always people that have a little bit of pro wrestling experience and and as your point is they do more global localization if they really do set up performance centers around the world that don't have a a a large independent wrestling community around it already that they're going to have to rely on a lot of athletes and entertainers who are not lifelong yeah i I mean they might get out of it because they're not americans and so you're already signing them to different contracts in different countries or something and that's the other piece that i'm always curious about is I, I do think one of the values of setting up developmental territories in other countries is it's a heck of a lot easier for someone to get a visa to go to Canada or to go to Europe, oftentimes, than go to the United States. Mm-hmm. And so if you're recruiting heavily in the Middle East, I bet you anything it's going to be a lot easier, or Asia, it's a lot easier for you to get them to Europe and be able to train them there. Or same thing in South America, that you might be much easier to just get these guys and get them going, because there's all sorts of people that will get hung up for an extraordinary amount of time due to the, the, the bureaucracy of the American visa system uh, that, that WWE is not going to care. Now, one thing that you and I were looking at yesterday is that IRS yes. independent contractor say, You want to go through checklist. the IRS 20-factor checklist. I don't want to make a big deal about it. I just want to make the point that the, the way the checklist works is it basically says, to be an independent contractor, you have to have control of your own time. And when WWE does things like puts a dress code for what you wear on a plane, that violates that. Because why would what you wear on a plane impact an independent contractor you're working for? Do you care what your roofing contractor wore to drive to your house? No, No, you don't. Because that's part of the relationship you have with that person. you're, You're paying them for a discreet service, and then it ends. And if you're always paying that same person, if your entire business relies on this network of people doing these things for you, and if in addition you say, hey, by the way, next week you can't go work for all these other people, and by the way, you have to be here at this time and work for me, and and even if you want to work for somebody else, that's a contract violation, and that uh, we say it may or may not be terminable yourself. So if you say, hey, I'm Neville, I don't want to work for you anymore, yet somehow you're stuck in your contract, or Rey Mysterio, or Daniel Bryan, or CM Punk or AJ Lee, all people who have had to 
kind of go into legal action and discussions with WWE about what does it mean for me to be under contract with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I, I think that's the other half of it that makes it really fuzzy is that it does not do well on the IRS test. Now, Connecticut court is a little bit more liberal in favor of the businesses than kind of this, this government standard. In general, the government has just kind of stayed out of it and not wanted to deal with it. So it will be a question someday of whether or not there will be, you know, like we talked about, would there be actual ability to create a union and actually negotiate? Because when the TV rights are going up as much as they are, and you look at the proportion of the wrestler pay, which is going to stay relatively flat, and maybe will inflate a little bit because there'll be people here, the uh, the Cody's or the Young Bucks of the world, that are going to probably get a pretty sweet deal wherever they land. And, and if independent wrestling doesn't sort of regenerate, yeah. if, uh, then this could be kind of a one-time event or, or a one-time big blip. That may, may not repeat over time if, if independent wrestling is really harvested like it, it might be. I don't know. And, and I honestly do think that insurance will end up being the big reason that WWE just wants to kind of move away from this model at some point. Is that they want to have a lot of control over where their athletes are going, why they're going to that network of people, and why that they're, they're, they're kind of covering those surgeries and understanding the recovery process for people. And in the same way that UFC eventually made that compete capitulation to do that i think wwe will eventually get there but i don't know if it will happen under Vince mcmahon regime so you know we talk about george and michelle i think george and michelle coming in from the outside that would be day one that's the right thing to do however vince isn't gonna give up on that it's something he's fought for so many years he's happy with the way it is but it's it's kind of that 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 pros and the cons about what a new leadership structure might look like for wwe mm-hmm. i still think that if vince went away there's even a possibility that it's not going to be a Paul, it's not going to be Steph, it's not going to be George, it's not going to be Michelle. It could be a brand new, outside the industry type person coming in. I'm thinking more like, you know, it's a bad example, but like a Shonda Rhimes or a... um, the guy, or, or Robert Kirkland or something, where you're talking about someone who has a creative vision of what it means to create a universe or create a, a, an idea, and this is a medium for them to do it in. Now, is that going to be the best person for it? Maybe, maybe not. But I think the challenge is that you cannot run pro wrestling like it's a business and just look at it as a balance sheet that you're managing the assets. I think you have to look at it as this is a creation model and that we have a mission just like a medical device has company has a mission, just like a food company has a mission. And, and otherwise, you're just an investment portfolio and you just happen right now to produce a television show. And tomorrow, for all I know, you could be into GoBot reselling. In, 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 the, in the case of secession, who would decide who... who? Who becomes the CEO, uh, board of directors? I would assume it's a, a, well, I mean, we actually know that there's a secession plan that has been written by the board of directors that has never been we publicized. We don't know what it is, no. Yeah, because people have asked that question. People have bugged them about it Do before. other companies publicize their secession plans? Is um, that a normal thing? I think in the, if they think it's going to challenge their public perception of their stock, yes. Yeah. But in this case, WWE doesn't, you know. They don't think so. It doesn't appear that way. Even though they list... Vince McMahon as, you know, Vince yeah. McMahon leaving the company or whatever as, as one a, of the as big a, as a risk factor. Yeah. yeah. So I think their answer is that we have this this solution here and we're not going to make a big deal about it because then you could also create this infinite ripple effect too because if it said hey George Barrios is going to take over the minute George Barrios leaves WWE then suddenly it's it's created this ripple effect and that was only a ripple because Vince leaves first, you know. So it, it could be a little bizarre in that situation there. Mm-hmm. Um when you look at the whole all in thing is it a brand that you could do 12 times a year? Is it a brand you can do four times a year? What is your thought kind of in terms of what this would be? Is there going to be anything else? Or is it such a logistic nightmare for everyone? The American nightmare is now the logistic nightmare. 
Is this so much that you just really can't do it more than twice a year? I think it can be called. There's Rich Craig. There's. We've had Raven come by. We've had Rich Krejci come by. We've had David Lagana. Yeah, Raven came. Raven was the friend unnamed who stood at the front of the desk here and just stared at me for a moment, and uh, I didn't know whether to sell it or not, so I no sold them. Yeah, I think they could definitely do another one next year. I mean, you kind of like look at what's all in two. Isn't that Ring of Honor New Japan MSG show kind of? I mean, not in name obviously, but it's the same sort of phenomenon. It's this uh, non WWE thing. Well, people were asking, what, was, what were these other brands getting out of being part of All In? What does Ring of Honor get out of being part of All In? What does New Japan get out of getting, being Mor- part of Morale, for one thing. Sure. So there is morale. That I do think that some of these wrestlers like to come to a, a show with 10,000 people, and it makes it seem like a big deal. If you're the NWA, this mm-hmm. was the best thing that's ever happened to your brand in the last 24 months. Now, I think there's a risk in, like, if you, if you want to maintain this talent, and you're going to tell them, no, you can't do this, this big, ambitious thing. Yeah. That they, that they want to do that in, in reality was very successful. Yeah, so that's a good example. That's number one. Number two, uh, New Japan, uh, is, last time I checked, holds the trademark on the Bullet Club. And a hell of a lot of Bullet Club shirts and Bullet Club gear was being sold this weekend. Mm. And so New Japan should be getting a licensing fee every time that's happening. Do you think and, that's happening? What's going on with that? Well, I assume that they saw, you know, I'm assume Pro Wrestling Tees is cutting them a very pretty check and a Hot Topic is cutting them a very pretty check as a result of all of this. And so it's very positive for them that they are going to be able to push their merch. And in a certain way, they're pushing their IP in America in a way that, that would always be something that they struggled in the past with, is how do I make New Japan break in? Um, and, and on the point of, of merchandise, if we, if we go into a scenario in 2019 where the Young Bucks, Cody, who, whoever in the Bullet Club is no longer with New Japan, what happens to all this Bullet Club merchandise? I mean, Bullet Bull Club will still exist, obviously. But obviously, what my point is, like, the people who leave, if they, if they leave New Japan slash Ring of Honor or whatever, they're not going to be able to sell that stuff anymore, at least not the Bullet Club stuff. Well, not the explicit Bullet I'm Club I'm glad stuff. you asked about that, because I have a special guest star, Mr. Harold May from New Japan Pro Wrestling, will not be here. Oh. But, no. I would love to ask him that. And that's part of the question about, like, as a U.S. expansion strategy, can New Japan and All In really coexist? For year after year, or at a certain point, are you kind of cannibalizing that whole idea of what the next brand is? Because there is that notion that maybe there's not enough air in this room for there to be five promotions that are all going to want to be big. And when you have New Japan, you have WWE, you have Ring of Honor, and then you have All In, one of those four has got to give. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the value of the promotion is, is becoming less and less over time. Because what is, if, if you're a wrestler, what's the value of a promoter to you? Is that the promoter can expose you, obviously offer you a contract, but like if, if they can do this stuff without them... Because I don't know if we have to be at war with promoters, I'm because I think promoters are dealing with all the logistical aspects that are such pains. You think it's fun to negotiate t- rights for every single person who wants to appear on your show? I think it's fun to get the venue contract and then find out two days beforehand the pool's broken and, and uh, that, you know... that. You know, they're not going to allow people to hang from the rafters, so you can't have 10,000 plus the 20 that were hanging up But what there. if you only have to do that once a year? <laughs> well, you know, that would be great. But then as soon as you do it once a year, someone says to you, well, why, why can't we do this twice a year? And then someone says to you, what if Raw was three hours I guess instead of two hours? Like, yeah. What if you have like a dozen or dozens of people in, in the U.S. Who, who just do it once a year, who are star wrestlers, they're promoting their own show once a year? I don't know, I don't, because I don't think it's a career. And I think that the difference here is that uh, one of the biggest challenges you have around talent management is you can't sign people to an exclusive contract of 20 events a year. Mm-hmm. 
No one wants that. No one wants to give that kind of like commitment. They want all or none, all in, not all in. And so it's just like as as a, a freelance writer or something else. You, in order to, to, you have to hit that critical mass, that hit critical point. And as an independent wrestler, it's nerve wracking to you to be like, okay, great, I did this. Let me wait another 12 months to do this again. I think wrestlers just constantly want to be like, why can't we do this all the time? Whereas fans actually do have a regeneration cycle, I find very heavily. Is that like after I go to WrestleMania, I'm good for a couple weeks on wrestling and I can kind of pull back and I can't go to too many things. And I think that's what happened in New Japan this year, right? New Japan, Long Beach definitely suffered from the fact that All In was announced and, yeah. and sold tickets before them. Yeah. People made plans to travel there and then New Japan tried to kind of shoehorn in between and people said, I really don't have time in my life between April and August to go and fly and spend and, and live another wrestling event here unless you can plan it out in advance. So because one of the biggest this lessons of big this, event. there it goes. Bam! Sorry, big uh, sign just fell Something right over fell. in front of a man, mm-hmm. uh, almost crushing him. Yeah. But, but luckily, I, but, I, but I think that the New Japan Long Beach or the New Japan San Francisco show suffered from. On the horizon, there's this other event with more energy, yeah, bigger event capacity. And it just to me, it's like the number one lesson of any show is let people know where they can see you, when they can see you, and what to expect. And mystery is not a selling point. People are so convinced that you can sell things on mystery. And when you look at the history of, of professional wrestling, mystery very rarely is, is going to pay off in a great way. I think that's the luck of All In, is that they didn't you know, lay a stinker really in any of those things with the mysteries. That you know, having Flip Gordon win the All In Battle Royal, spoilers, uh, did not in fact uh, cause this company to, you know, pe- the, the audience to groan. Uh, you know, you and I had done the pre-show uh, predicting on what was going to happen. Uh, and, and if you want to listen to that, you can go to WrestleNomics.com. You can sign up $5 a month. Who, who won, by the way? Did, did, we, uh, did we count our, uh, our predictions? Who had the higher winning percentage here? No, I don't think it's possible to do math of that caliber uh, when you're traveling like this. I'm uh, pretty sure, as usual, my, my predictions were superior. Oh, my goodness. And, and as we remember... The, the, do you remember what was, was being wagered? I believe it was a steak contest. dinner. A steak, steak dinner. I seem to remember something different. What do you remember? I, I seem to remember a, a, a package of dirt, also known as a vegan protein bar. A no-cow chocolate fudge brownie bar with yes. 21 grams of protein, one gram of sugar, yeah. no bull, no whey. It's a vegan uh, bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, it expired two years ago, but uh, that doesn't really make a difference because a piece of concrete doesn't expire, really. No, uh, I, I bought it two days ago. It's a protein blend. Mm-hmm. It has isomalto oleosaccharides and mm. cocoa nibs. Yeah. Uh, I, I said to myself when I was in Wegmans, you know, I'm, I'm going to go see Mookie and I really want to give him a great gift. And uh, this, uh, the, these wonderful protein bars just yeah, stuck So I've down. agreed to eat one of these. Uh, uh, I'll have to do that a little bit later. Uh, should not eat on air. No, as, it would be unprofessional. It would be unprofessional and we're nothing but professional. But the, the point of this was, before you got me completely off track, was that, you know, when we did our predictions, it was Cody versus Nick and I said, I could see Nick retaining. You know, it's it's tough to to give the NWA co- title away to Cody, and then you have the risk that maybe he's gonna not be around to be their champion in the future, or maybe they'll just do a flip here and they'll maybe flip he'll it just back lose in Nashville it before you know he's yeah. somewhere else. But but you know, wasn't sure. Well, we were at the arena there, and much like when I was in Miami and The Rock was wrestling, there was gonna be a riot if Cody did not win this event. There would have been a riot if The Rock didn't win that event. It was really hot. I, I, I heard that the TV broadcast did not like the the crowd so well, but. This was, I don't know, I haven't been to a ton of live events, but this has got to be the hottest crowd I've ever been in, in attendance for. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's the epitome of Cody Ray Rhodes is always a five out of five on presentation. 
He's a five out of five on his promos leading into this. It's a five out of five out of build. And the wrestling match was okay. It was not a great wrestling match. It's not one of those that you're going to be like, you got to watch this move for move and really study it. But instead, it told the story they wanted, and that audience was behind it and over. And so it was successful in that way. And it was a perfect example of where the crowd can raise or lower the star rating just because of the atmosphere and the outcome and the fact that it was what the people wanted and that they teased it well enough that people did not think they were going to get what they wanted. And then they got what they wanted. And lo and behold, the product that they paid for, they received. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there were a lot of people there to specifically support Cody. And there's this story of him, you know, possibly winning the NWA title like his dad did. And people are super emotionally invested in seeing that happen. Yeah, and and the the other part of this is what makes this so challenging to me is this does not feel like it's a series of storylines that we're going to continue on for years and years. This felt like it's a snapshot. It felt like a season finale of a show. and Not even a season finale. More like a series finale in a way, because a season finale has a cliffhanger to try to get you to come back to the next year's show. This one didn't have that. Almost everything was very wrapped up in tight things and then everyone sat in the ring and hugged. And so, while that's, that's nice, it does in some ways kind of say hey, by the way, this is about you guys enjoying what you're watching here. This isn't about it's a blood feud and the two of us are going to fight this to the death and I'm going to see you next week in, in Poughkeepsie. To be fair, it's, it's not as if like Nick Aldis and Cody were hugging afterwards. At, at the end of the show, the Bullet Club folks were all in the ring. Well, and even the, the, the Penta, I'm sorry, even uh, Phoenix and Bandito and, and yes. uh, Ray, you yes. know, were hugging with the Young Bucks as they, they sped through their show in, in uh, Hoosier speed at, at 2x speed the entire time. Yes. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting there where it, it's one of those where they did not announce exactly what the next thing was going to be. Mm-hmm. And that's always a challenge when you're a promoter. And so I'm not so much on the, 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 the kick that you are of promoters are meaningless in this world because I, I think everyone plays a role. And I think there's a lot of roles that are un, 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 unlovable roles. And so being the accountant is an unlovable role in a professional wrestling organization it's an important role and I think George might be a really good accountant yeah. I, I, I just question I whether he'd be a really good promoters are, are meaningless but they're becoming less essential um, and I think the Janela shows Jericho doing his own cruise this show happening is uh, I, I would guess a sign of things to come in future years for sure for sure and so when you, when you kind of uh, game it out here what if you are one of these promotions like a Ring of Honor or whatnot? What did you get out of this show? What did Ring, on, Ring of Honor get out of the show? So you said morale. I'll agree with that. The stars that they, they do have dates for are now even bigger stars because of this event and because this event came off well. Oh, sure, sure. I, I think, you know, they got Jay Lethal in front of 10,000 people, and a large percentage of those people have probably not been watching Jay Lethal for years. Mm-hmm. And... Unfortunately, what the, the act that they're doing there is basically he's doing the act of another guy's act, and that's always where it's a it's a really shady thing for me. Where it was it's WrestleMania like, Seven. Yeah. Have, have you seen Randy Savage versus the Ultimate Warrior WrestleMania Seven? Not in a very, very, very long time. I yes. probably not not till since the early early nineties. M- maybe it happened at WrestleMania Five too with Hogan on it, but the, the repeated elbows off the top yes. and. Uh, Brandy Rhodes on the shoulder, like Miss Elizabeth. Yeah. And so that, that's just where I'm challenged, because in a certain way, it's like, it, it's a weird version of a brand. It would be like if I did a Game of Thrones parody act, and then everyone's like, you're really over, and I'd be like, yeah, but aren't I really Game of Thrones is over, and you're, I'm over because I'm like that? And, and that's a weird place to be. And I guess in a certain way, wrestling has always been built on people doing imitations of other people, stealing their acts, stealing their moves, stealing their... Their, their, their heat and their culture and then appropriating yeah. that and so I, I, I thought it's about funny that. we talk about cultural that, that, that match with, with you know Jay Lethal doing the Macho Man gimmick but like think about Ric Flair 
Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, and Fargo Strut and everything think, else. Think, I mean, think about Hulk Hogan. You can say Hulk Hogan. Hulk, Hulk Hogan's just a superstar Billy Graham. I know. And that's what I was going to say. It's funny we talk so much about cultural appropriation in professional wrestling, when in some ways professional wrestling is nothing but appropriation of other people's ideas constantly. Yeah, I, I think, like, maybe most arts are like that. You think about what, movies, literature. A lot of them are referencing the things that came before them. I think we're all getting away from economics. But I think the... the all this stuff that we do, we're all, we're all building on the stuff that came before us, and we're doing this in front of audiences that not all audiences are, are super experienced with watching wrestling, but the more like an all-in audience that, that is really experienced in watching wrestling, there's a lot of reference and irony that you can, you can deal with, and... It, it works. I think that match worked. I think a lot of other, Hulk Hogan worked. Ric oh, Flair worked. It did, but it was just weird for me where I was thinking, if you're Ring of Honor, are you actually showcasing this is what we produce and this is what we do? Or is it to say, this is the... Because to me, that was Memphis memories. Mm-hmm. That's saying, here's something you remember. Here's something you remember fondly. Here's me giving that back to you, yeah. you in want, a way this, that this you enjoy. Unique, unique act. This guy's a star like nothing else you've ever seen before, and that's why you should come and do return business with us. A little bit of that. So I, I do wonder if, if Ring of Honor, out of all this deal may not necessarily come off the hottest. And, and same thing, I thought the Briscoes, uh, another great example of, of a, a team that I was really excited to see on the show, but ultimately by the end, I totally forgot the Briscoes even did a match. Mm-hmm. That was the first match. Wasn't that it? was the first yes, match, yes. but yeah, I totally forgot about that by the end of the show. So it, it's intriguing to me that like, so Ring of Honor, yeah, I think they did get a lot of exposure and, and it helps them be seem like a big deal and honestly what you do if you're Ring of Honor is you take a tape of the show you start going to every TV network in America and saying hey look at this this is what I do this is what I do because Ring of Honor can now put 10,000 people in a building drew on their resume and they might have to put a tiny little asterisk on that but the reality is every business professional out there doesn't know better yeah. and they're going to do it again in April with more responsibility for themselves in Madison Square Garden Absolutely. And so that's, that's, that's going to be one part of it. New Japan, like I said, they get a giant licensing deal out of this. Uh, they keep some of their stars happy because I do think some of their stars really did want to come to the U.S. I think it's also a proof of concept to New Japan to say this is how you can be successful in America drawing with a style that is not a WWE style. But in fact, is a style that's much closer to a lot of what you present in New Japan. Not everything. You know, I don't think we're going to see Marco Stunt. Uh, uh, or is that that's his name, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. I don't think we're going to see fun size Marco Stunt necessarily on a New Japan show, but we do see cheeseburger. So you know, for all we know, maybe in the Rambo. Maybe in the Rambo. Um, I, all in two. Will there be a ramp? Yes or no? As opposed to a staircase. A staircase. A very slippery staircase. As as a um, was it Matt Jackson said at the end there, he had to do a, a running dive off of it, and it was covered in Okada bucks, yes. and he was terrified he was going to like sprain his ankle, yeah. and uh, even WWE wouldn't pay for that one probably. Right. Can't blame him. But yeah, uh, but I think it is it's good for New Japan to have at, at least one Okada here because oh yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. get one of one of your very top stars. You know, he was on the show with ten thousand people in it. So um, that was a little bit of the breakdown there. So you had, what did Ring of Honor get out of it? What did uh, uh, New Japan get out of it? You know, the promotion that I thought got the most out of this and is, is in some ways had the least presence here is Lucha Underground. Because there's so much of this that you're like, oh, I saw that guy in Lucha Underground. I saw that guy in Lucha Underground. Hey, I found out about that guy in Lucha Underground. Mm-hmm. And you kind of look at this as this opportunity curve and be like, wow, that company had all that talent. Oh, this is where they are now. Yeah. And it was almost like you, you, you feel like it's the old days of ECW when you would see them all on someone else's show and be like, wow, they, those guys used to be in ECW? Why weren't they a bigger star? 
So I, that was one of the like most reflective things for me was thinking about how how in some ways this was a showcase of all the people that Lucha Underground at some point in their career was able to get under contract, and yet this is still where they are in the pantheon of American wrestling, yeah. which just goes to prove it's how you use them, not who you have. And I think Pentagon is an example of somebody who got really over when season one of Lucha Underground was mm-hmm. broadcast, but of course season one was was aired or was was taped so far in advance that. Lucha Underground can't really respond to, oh, wow, this guy's really getting over on the internet, and wow, the, the gifts and the way he looks is just you know, incredible. So they couldn't really respond to that until the following season. And, and there's also the element of studio wrestling versus live wrestling, which is if, if you're doing Lucha Underground in this hermetically sealed uh, cavern 10 miles underground of L.A. With NDAs. With NDAs and you know, paid fans or free fans or whatever that's a very different environment when then you're going to slice that back up and retell that story versus if you look at it from the the standpoint of like we're 10,000 people coming here to watch this show and they're going to give you a live reaction. So I don't think Cody versus Nick gets over the same way on a studio when you're watching it on, uh, from home than it does when 10,000 people in that arena are standing up and cheering and pounding their fists yeah. and, and stomping their feet. Yeah. And, and the window may have passed, but I think there was an opportunity for Lucha Underground to do a big live event. Yeah, it just really strikes me about the fact that it that the the fallacy sometimes is that talent alone creates a draw, and it's not the talent; it's the it's the ability to create a narrative structure, a cohesive environment in which you're both leading the people down a certain path, giving them some ownership of that path, and at the same time, kind of telling a narrative story that is somewhat fun. So, like you know, you could argue the whole silliness with the Flip Gordon angle. Built and built and yeah. built and built and built and built, and so by the time it happened, people were excited in that arena. Even though there were some people there who didn't know who Flip Gordon were, and they especially didn't know who Flip Gordon with an A was. But that's okay. Yes. Was that was that corrected later? I, I believe so, but yeah. I but, did. But that was like a, almost a year long storyline, right? Like when we went to the WrestleCon Super Show, there was all this stuff going on about Flip Gordon trying to get on. Yes. Uh, all in. Yes, and so th- I think that's that's kind of an intriguing thing where, and I, and I think Cody went so far as like on a Reddit AMA to say that uh, oh he's really talented, he just, just, just didn't make the cut. Didn't make the cut, which is is always going to be tough for people. But I, I, I've just been struck at the entire piece that they put together. I think that's really great. And the other question would be, how long does it take to format this, and is it overthinking, underthinking, or the right amount of thinking? Like put this card together to make it actually execute right. Was this the sort of thing where you had to be like, well, we spent six months trying to sketch it out? Or is this one of the where you're just like, no, you can do it in a day. And the fact that you don't do it in a day and you can sometimes try to plan it out way in advance, that's what burns you the most. I, I really would be curious to, to if people are talking to Cody or talking to the Bucks or, or talking to any of the producers that were involved in the show. I'd love to know. You mean more as far as that. like trying to create long term storylines where oh, somebody got injured or something happened, with, he's not available now? Well, just other, the other argument has always been that maybe people overthink it. People try to come up with these complex machinations of all these different little building blocks. And when in the, the simple cases just be like, hey, we're going to go out, we're going to do this in the match, we're going to do this, and then the final payoff is going to be this. And, and it doesn't, it, and it's the idea that like maybe by writing the storylines and trying to really, really, really plan it all out, even if you're a Lucha Underground or something else, you're not reacting as, as organically to let's just sit down today and make this work the best we can. So are you just advocating simpler storylines? 
I'm advocating not overthinking things. Like, again, it's a very, very improv idea. Jump in the net will appear or, or just like be in the moment, be, be connected to people. Yes, trust, trust yourself, trust that you have good ideas. And that a lot of times what we're doing is we're relying on other people to kind of give us this direction. And then we, we go in this direction, we stay in this direction for too long. And I know people think that, oh, he must be talking about Roman Reigns. But I'm talking about all promotions that kind of look at it as You're you have to sketch Roman it all Reigns out. Again, are you? No, I'm, I'm bearing the idea that, that maybe that, that we have the ability to be more in the moment. And, and the reason today's show connected, or yesterday's show, connected so well with that audience is because they didn't put it together in such a way that people felt like, oh, this was decided three months ago, what would happen? I, I think there's something to... Like all the videos that were done, being the elite, obviously, and uh, all all that Adam Page and uh, Joy Ryan stuff, and the the boots talking to him. I think this is stuff that's very. It's it's easy for that, for something like that, just the imagery of it to catch fire on social media to be gifable. Like I mean, I'm sure there were I don't know, but I'm sure there were gifts of of like the boot, the boots <laughs> talking to Adam Page. So and, so and, and if you want lots of people to see your stuff or even just get a sample of it and to be like, what is that? And then maybe they look further into it. So as an old man, Brandon, did you feel that you were at the median age, the older age, or the younger age than most of the people in that audience there? Maybe the median. You, so that would leave you just above the median. Yeah, so, so that, that's the biggest difference between you and I, right, is I have a cable television subscription. Yes. I have a Laserdisc player. Mm-hmm. I have a corded telephone mm-hmm. that I have not beat anyone to death with in the past you year. you have a corded telephone proven. in your home? Um... No, I lied about that. I, I have a, I have a, I actually have like a, not a VoIP type thing. It's like it was the Wait. triple play. Like Xfinity basically wants to, Ro- to a rotary phone. No, Xfinity wants to be a pro wrestling promoter, and so the easiest way of doing that is to make up fake numbers. And the best way to make up fake numbers is to tell people, hey, I'll take your cable bill down if you agree to get a phone line that you'll never use. Yeah. And so I got that phone line I, that I never used. Tried to make me do something. And so similar. I plugged it in. And 99% of the day, it never rings. And once a day, or once a, once a year, it rings. And I sit at home, and I pick up the phone, and it's a Harris poll. And suddenly, I realize that I'm in one of those big political polls where they want me to tell whether or not I think the economy is better or so, not better because of Donald a- a- Trump. Errol Lucha was calling you? No. <laughs> No, it was a Harris poll. This yeah, was the true so, story. So, so I was, I was like the guy. Then, like a week later, a CNN article came out, and so I didn't. I talked about the Wall Street Journal one. I didn't talk about how influenced the CNN poll. And, and you were quoted in CNN as well. Yes, where I basically said that WrestleNomics is the leading indicator for all political discourse in America, and yeah. somehow that, that quote got edited out at the end. Yeah, that's a shame. But but anyways, but yes, I, I have a, a phone, so I feel a little bit older than these people because I don't mm. watch Being the Lead. I, I I don't know. I, I'm not. You know, Twitch still confuses and confounds me. Um, but in, in the same time, I kind of felt like this was a genius because we, this show wasn't on Twitch. The show was still on a pay-per-view mm-hmm. service and still... You know, I'm sure they made way more. I think it's just like... I would the, love to know what the buys are going to end up being. I mean, people... I think the, the attraction was so condensed that you, you're going to make way more money by putting this on pay-per-view than you would on an ad revenue platform like Twitch. Yeah, well, and, and that's the other piece of this is that a lot of times people forget that the niche model of professional wrestling says you're better off at 1.5 million WWE Network subscribers where you create a new tier at $15, then you are trying to make that number jump up to 3 million just by continuously racing to the bottom mm-hmm. of, of, of putting more Divas Legends House on there where, where the Bella Twins live with Pat Patterson or okay. whatever it's going to be. You know, th- that's not going to be the, the solution to this entire deal. So I, I just think it's going to be interesting to see what they get make on the money on the pay-per-view buys and whatnot and i heard people who said they tried to buy the pay-per-view using kind of like more traditional television and there was no buy button really yeah so i don't know if they just had to want it more but you get it through fight yeah they could get it through fight and uh that that's that's great and so i ultimately 
we used a combination of both old media, new media, and we met in the middle, and it, and it worked out. And, yeah. and I think it was successful there. What also was interesting is it's that debate about, is this DIY? Yeah. Is well, this punk? Is this pop punk? T- take a guess on buys. 10,000? Uh, no, 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 no. I think, I think you did at least 80,000. Uh, 80,000. I, I don't think that's a ridiculous number, is to say, if there's 10,000 people in this arena... And we can do eight times that number across the entire world that can access fight. For reference, uh, Wrestle Kingdom 2015. Did like 120,000 or 100,000? 10,000. Oh, did 10,000. Yeah. Oh, well, then maybe I'm way off on my numbers here. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm going to go high. I'm going to say that it could have done fifty to 80,000. Because I even had guys today texting me who heard about the show asking me if they should buy it. Mm. The only thing that I think really super depresses the 80,000 numbers, the fact that New Japan basically put out there that they will load the show. And so the value it's, of the show is 999 yen. Mm. And so as soon as you told not, everyone... Not live, though. I know, but as yeah. soon as you told everyone it's worth 999 yen, or you can pay $40 today, the people that want it today, who have FOMO, the fear of missing out, they're going to jump on it today and they're going to get into it. But everybody else, if you already say... I could actually get this. It's already on Daily Motion somewhere. It's already on, you know, the, the dark web. Friction. Friction. There's friction. And so I, I do think that, you know, you don't get as many late buys for such a buzzed great show that it was. Um, and also, I, th- I think the 10,000 for, for the New Japan thing, you got to keep in mind that's another language. It was at a weird yeah. time. Yes. It was only partially promoted. Yeah. And I so mean, it, you got to go with these three extra They broadcast it live, and then it, it, it just so happened to work out. You know, January 4th is on whatever day of the, the yeah the week it is in whatever given year but on in that year it just happened to be on sunday so that was convenient because the you know, american wrestling fans are used to watching pay-per-views on a sunday night and and just keep in mind jeff jarrett was on both of those shows so i mean obviously he is the draw of all of this when you really he, he is one down. of the great businessmen in pro wrestling history all right so we're getting to the very end of of our show here we've been uh wrestlenomics radio we are on the podcast movement westwood one podcast network stage we're a part of the voices of wrestling network right coming after us is going to be the voices of wrestling with mr dave lagana of the nwa giving all the insights and the secrets there he's going to let rich unscrew the belt and see the secret message that's written underneath um, behind the nameplate there so you're going to want to tune in and see that i heard maybe that was inscribed by farmer burns himself it was inscribed by farmer burns himself it's an old gaelic script though a lot of people don't know that um the challenge will be uh, you want to hear more of us. You want to hear more things that we do. You go to WrestleNomics.com. It's $5 a month, and uh, you're able to sign up. You're able to be part of the new media monetization strategy of WrestleNomics, where you'll get to see great videos like Chris eating a piece of dirt that he lost in a bet, or yeah. uh, or perhaps just more training tips from Brandon Thurston and how to thwart your promoters in your life. Or if that's too much friction for you, there is you, you can subscribe for free to the – we do two podcasts every week. We do a free one. We do a Patreon one. This is the free one, I think, right now. It is. It is. And, and we, we always like to stress to people, it's two different shows. They're completely different. So a lot of fun going on there. Uh, WrestleNomics at gmail.com or, or WrestleNomics as a Twitter account. You can always hit us up. We really enjoy everyone. We've had some people even coming here and watching us. We've had Raven walk up about a foot away from me, and, and I no-sold him, so I that feel was, bad. That was, not, that was not Raven. That was not Raven? That was not Raven. I think that was Raven. Mm. Okay. We'll see. Uh, but we'll have a good day sometime. Uh, this has been Russell Nomics Radio. I'm Chris Harrington. Joined to my right is Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston. Have a great night, everybody.